Willkommen, Honying, Shemese, and Fulcherove to the second episode of Oh My Podcast, the Pop Culture Podcast. I'm Katie McDermott. I'm Ali Kerr. And we're staying local today. We'll be discussing Ireland's infamous Hellfire Club. This is the supposedly satanic gentleman's club from the 1700s. Cue heavy metal music. <laughs> We've decided to do a bit of method podcasting, so we're currently in my kitchen wearing powdered wigs and, more importantly, drinking scalpine or Hellfire Punch made of whiskey and hot butter. We're also attempting to smoke cigars. <laughs> and uh, we're also wearing leather jackets and uh, metal t-shirts. Katie's wearing Guns and Roses and uh, I'm wearing a Lenny t-shirt as we speak. <laughs> so for this episode, we'll be discussing the history of the Hellfire Club and diving into all the scandalous activities and legends surrounding it. Later on, we're going on a road trip to visit the club's ruins on Mount Pellier in the heart of the Dublin mountains, after which we'll have a brief chat about the archaeological dig there and the Save the Hellfire campaign. First of all, though, how did you find the research for this episode? Uh, I honestly uh, had so much fun researching this episode. I didn't think I would. And I found up things that I'm like, how did they not teach this in the history books? Yeah. How I, I couldn't find any a decent documentaries about it either. I mean, I think it's very under-researched. And it's so interesting. I was so excited learning this. I would come home from work exhausted, really grumpy and pissed off. But I would go straight into the research because that's how much fun I had doing it. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I always had a vague awareness of the Hellfire Club growing up. Yeah. But knew nothing about it other than it was something to do with the devil and it was in Dublin. Yeah. Like, I can't believe I, I didn't even hear just through rumours and hearsay more of this stuff. It's it's insane. Yeah, I mean, like, all I knew about it really was, again, what you said, and it was an Imelda May song as well, that yeah. I knew vaguely. But, um, yeah, it is fascinating. Part of the problem, though, and you'll, you'll find this out as you listen to the episode, is there's so much conflicting information and versions of all the various stories out there. This is very much something that lived on through oral history and through folklore. So Nothing is gospel here. Nothing's gospel. There's little actual confirmable evidence. So we're going to be diving a lot more into the legend than the fact. But first of all, what is a Hellfire Club? <laughs> So there were a couple of Hellfire Clubs in England and uh, in Ireland is the one we're going to be focusing on, but it's basically a gentleman's club. It was um, for the members of the upper class with too much time on their hands and too much money, and it was an excuse for them to get into things that society saw as immoral at the time. And the Irish one was probably the weirdest. Definitely the most notorious Yeah, one. and then the Irish language uh, for it is Club Hina Ifran, which you'll see on all the roads and stuff around the place. Yeah. The first official Hellfire Club was founded in London in 718 by Philip, Duke of Wharton, and a handful of other high society friends. And But the most notorious one was established in London by Sir Francis Dashwood, and they met regularly around London. And some notable members even include Benjamin Franklin himself. Yeah, in 1758, he was in England on a trip. He may have been a spy, but he's definitely confirmed to have attended the Hellfire Club. And the English ones, um, they were kind of rebelling against religion at the time. They mentioned the devil a lot. The president was called the devil, things like that. But they didn't literally worship them. It was more just a kind of joke about the upper classes. They ate things like Holy Ghost pie and breast of Venus. And they worshipped Bacchus, which is the Latin for the Greek god Dionysus, god of wine, vegetation, pleasure, festivity, madness and wild frenzy. And a little bit of orgies here and there. Quite a lot of orgies, like the Bacchanalia, the festival to honour the god Bacchus. And uh, yeah, it mostly consisted of the gentry, noblemen and rakes. Yeah. However, it was one of the few clubs of the time that allowed women to join. Yeah, one of the few gentlemen clubs. And uh, the ladies weren't just whores either. They were ladies of considerable quality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Evelyn Lord, in her book Hellfire Club, Sex, Satanism and Secret Societies, says... She doubts how many orgies there were, 
But she does say there were definitely thing, definitely mentions of Satanism. There were definitely pornographic items, including a confirmed box of imported leather dildos that was delivered to Dashwood's club. <laughs> Lots of <laughs> drinking. Did we find one? No, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, lots of whoring, strippers, feasting, lots of violent, random attacks on strangers, which kind of migrate to Ireland. Ali will talk about that now. And then just erotic literature, including Bibles decorated with phallic symbols. Well, well why not? Um, also, it had a, a, another notable famous person there as well was uh, Daniel Defoe, who also wrote Robinson Crusoe. As you know, it's the most boring book ever written. <laughs> I <laughs> like it. Be nice. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, he uh, had this to say about it. A dreadful set of fellows met here every night and behaved with all the revealing and roaring extravagancies, as is usual for such people at other times, and indeed to such an offensive degree, that the very master and mistress of the house grew first ashamed and then terrified at them. They were not afraid to blaspheme God or talk atheistically. This tavern where they held at their club being victim view of the church door, they had more particular occasion for their uh, atheistical profane mirth. <laughs> However, um, of course, a lot of these uh, documents had taken a lot of creative liberties, so we don't really know for sure. As again, as we said in the beginning, this is not gospel. Yeah, this yeah. is hearsay. We're looking for the most interesting stories, not the most accurate here. Um, so eventually the Hellfire Club was migrated to Ireland. We were a bit slow on the uptake. We had a lot of other things before we had Hellfire Club, but we were very good at copying England. So you found a lot out about all the various random groups we had. Yeah, there were a few uh, precursors to the actual club. And uh, one of the first one was the Mohawks, uh, spelled M-O-H-O-C-K-S, which of course is spelled wrong. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they took the name from, obviously, the Native American Mohawks. And uh, a lot of them were, um, of upper class, well-born criminals. And uh, they would abuse men and women in a very eccentric manner, such as slitting the tips of the victims' noses, manhandling them into barrels, and rolling down hill- rolling them down hills. Pretty sure you can do that for hen parties now. In inflatable balls. Um, yeah, more of a gruesome version of like stag nights and hen parties, but this would happen on a weekly basis, if you can imagine such a thing. And um, also the Mohawks eventually died down and their activities and mis- misdemeanors were paled in comparison to the Dublin's, wait for it, the Pink and Dindies. <laughs> That's my favourite word for anything ever, the Pink and Dindies. Yeah, it doesn't sound half as threatening as it should. No, no, but they were actually pretty damn threatening and notorious. They were founded by Richard Cosby and were arguably one of the nastiest clubs to emerge in Irish Georgian society. They comprise of upper-class Protestants, most of whom were Trinity College students. Should I be offended? <laughs> <laughs> Katie is an alumni of that said not, college. Not something I'm necessarily proud of, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the Pink and Dindies were known as violent, hedonistic, fashion-forward dandies. <laughs> Their name is derived from the habit of pinking or pricking innocent passers by with their pointed swords. Yeah, I read somewhere that they cut an inch off the top of their scabbards, so it's easier for them to, to stab people, basically, because people weren't aware that they weren't in a scabbard. <laughs> Yes, these are the type of people we're dealing with here. And um, yeah, during the 1770s, they were on rampage. They went on rampages straight Dublin, vandalising theatres, toppling lampposts, raiding gambling dens, and molesting women. One target was the broth- was the brothel run by Margaret Leeson, who was a head brothel keeper in Dublin at the time. Margaret, who had a miscarriage from a brutal attack, slammed her assailants. She said. However they might be deemed gentlemen at their birth or connections, yet by their actions, deserve no other than appellation by that of ruffians. The Binkin Dindies eventually disbanded in 1784 and Crosby spent a brief period in jail. However, Crosby later redeemed himself by becoming the first Irish person to perform a manned ascent in a hot air balloon. Oh, that forgives everything. <laughs> the thing I find crazy about these, though, is like this is confirmable historical fact. Everything we're going to go through about the Hellfire Club, 90% of it is doubtful. Yet that gets so much more acclaim than this genuine group of people who randomly stabbed people in Dublin. And they're 
the pink and dindies. I mean, you've got to remember that name for the rest of your life. So, after the pink and di- the pink and dindies and the mohawks and uh, the rest of the weirdos. After the pink and dindies, Connolly um, is a man who didn't intentionally start the Hellfire Club, but he's kind of semi-responsible for everything that happened. So the Irish Hellfire Club was heavily influenced by the London clubs. Ireland at the time, for those of you who don't know your Irish history, uh, was governed by the wealthy Protestant ascendancy class. They were a minority, they were the landlords, and then the Irish, 90% of the country, the Irish peasantry, were uneducated and had no money or land. Um, I read one account claiming that the Hellfire Club was inspired by the Enlightenment, the whole idea of free thought and criticism of religion, but that seems like a very high and mighty justification for... Makes sense. I mean, like, so many... People in the Enlightenment, including Voltaire, did consider some atheists. Yeah. So I think atheism was kind of linked with free thinking. Yeah. So as it can be today. Which was blasphemous at the time. <laughs> Speaking of blasphemy, David Ryan in his book Blasphemers and Blaggards, the Irish Hellfire Clubs, says that the Irish clubs in particular got so bad because they were protest against the extraordinarily censorious social environment. So Irish freethinkers were more condemned than English freethinkers. So, William Connolly was a speaker in the Irish House of Commons, and he bought land on Montpellier Hill in Dublin, land from Wharton, who started the first uh, English club, coincidentally. And William Connolly uh, was a speaker in the Irish House of Commons. He bought the land at Montpellier. He wanted to build a tavern there, but unfortunately, there was a pesky old cairn there. And a cairn is a kind of mound of rocks used to mark an ancient burial tomb. And those of you who like your Stephen King know you should never disturb the Indian burial grounds or the native Irish burial grounds. Yeah, and but this current dated back from the Neolithic period, so around uh, 45,000 BC to 2000 BC. Yeah. So the, if you're thinking Neolithic, think of, you know, Newgrange and Stonehenge and things like that. Somebody just getting a big hammer and wrecking that. Yeah, yeah. It was in his way, so he basically got rid of it completely repurposed the stone, used it to build a house. There was a standing stone nearby and he used that as a lintel over the fireplace. Like, he did not give a shit. Yeah. So, he was eager to construct a new hunting lodge and had his eye on Mount Pelier. Nothing else would have done. Connolly was eager to construct a new hunting lodge and had his eye on Mount Pelier. Ah, yeah. This will make a lovely site for a hunting lodge. Lovely locale. It's nice and remote. Great view of the city. Oh, wait. What's this? Oh, shite. There's already an ancient tomb here. Fuck. Oh, well. I guess I'd better leave and find a new one. Whoops. I accidentally broke the car with my hammer. Oh, well. Connolly continued to desecrate the tomb and constructed the lodge with the tombstones and boulders. The, the bastard. bastard. And uh, so after he made the lodge, Richard Parsons, the first Earl of Roch, was uh, the Grandmaster of the first Irish Freemasons. He, he is was Grandmaster twice. He was Grandmaster in 1725 and in 1730. Feckin' Protestant. So it's no good as usual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, uh, so he was a well-known libertine and nihilist which was, oh, a big no-no back in the day. Lord Ross hated Christianity and the clergy. Here's an account of Ross making a mockery of a clergyman who visited him in his house. His lordship, on being told that the doctor was in the parlour, shrewdly guessing at his business, immediately stripped himself stark naked and in this state came running into the room with outstretched arms saying, Worthy Dr. Madden, I'm glad to see you. How do you do? Shake hands with me, Doctor. When I heard you were here, I was in such a hurry to see you that I couldn't wait to put my clothes on. The Doctor, shocked at the wild spectacle, leapt up and was for hastening out the room, but his Lordship stopped him, saying, My dear Doctor, don't be in a hurry. Tell me your business. I will be glad to do anything to serve you. The doctor pushed past him, but his lordship accompanied him to the street door, where he stood for some time as a show to the people passing by. Oh my. And uh, he eventually stepped down from Freemason. Freemason. Freemasonry. 
He was in the Freemasons. <laughs> and uh, he inherited a huge fortune. Or would it be about a million pounds in present day Monday? Present. It would be a million pounds in present day Monday. Money! <laughs> it would be a million pounds in modern day money. Very good. <laughs> And uh, he inherited from his great his grand his great grandmother, Countess of Tyrconnell, you know, i.e. Donegal. So he, as many rich people do, he went on a gap year and travelled around Egypt. Uh, in particular, he claims while in Egypt to have found some Dionysian scrolls from the god Dionysus, which is the Greek for the Latin Bacchus, who was worshipped in the English club. Uh, and he says these scrolls were looted from the Library of Alexandria, and he must be some sort of magic man, because the Library of Alexandria burned down centuries before he ever arrived in Egypt. But sure, we'll take him at his word. And when he got home, he wrote a book called Dionysus Rising. And then he founded the, the sacred sect of Dionysus, but um, it proved not to be that popular, and it later disbanded. And then in 1735, he rebranded it, and then he founded... The Hellfire Club! I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you... So, the club. What was it? It was basically dancing, drinking until you're... I don't know, your heart's content, and involved politicians and elite members of society. They end all the binge drinking and... Dwelling and gambling, sex orgies, and of course, satanic rituals. Mm. Some things that are particularly well known that they did, they left a, the vice president's chair was left vacant at every meeting for the devil himself. And the first toast was always drank to the devil. And then their mascot was the black cat, which is kind of an international symbol for witchcraft. But also in Irish folklore, we have the black dog, which is kind of a hellhound or an emissary of the devil. And in the black dog at glowing eyes and in most of the Hellfire legend of the black cat has glowing eyes. So it's probably something it borrowed from native folklore. Which still haunts the Hellfire Club to this day. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the president of the Hellfire Club was called the King of Hell and was dressed like Satan with horns, wings and cloven hooves. <laughs> and the drink of choice was... Scalpy! Hey! <laughs> Which is surprisingly nice. I'm enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. It, yeah, it kind of reminds me of Butterbeer from Harry Potter. Mm. And, uh, and kind yeah. of like a spicy hot, hot whiskey. Mm. It's nice. It's really good. So um, shortly after the completion of the Hellfire Club, a storm blew the roof off and locals said it was the devil's work as kind of vengeance for Connolly destroying the local cairn. I don't see why the fuck a Christian devil would punish them for destroying a pagan burial monument, but anyway. So from its earliest days, it was played with all this folklore, legend, mystery, and the demonic. Sure. The devil himself doesn't even like the Protestants. <laughs> Second Protestants. Okay, not, no that, good. not that we're prejudiced or anything. Not at all. But um, one barman who worked in the hell club for many years noted the seedy and salacious behaviour of its members. How <laughs> they drank their born and scaldine, standing in impious bravado before blazing fires, till the marrow melting in their wicked bones, they fell down dead upon the floor. How there was an unaccountable but unmistakable smell of brimstone at their wakes, and how their very horses evinced a reluctance to draw the hearses containing their wretched bodies to their grave. Dirty bastards. Dirty bastards is not verbatim, by the way. Just to let you know. <laughs> so, uh, based on a lot of our research, it's, it's more likely that they were just irreverent towards the whole concept of religion rather than literally worshipping the devil. I doubt they believed it themselves. However, that didn't stop any of the um, rumours and mystique we're about to get into. Yeah, one of the major ones was um, uh, a mysterious stranger appeared in a black robe seeking shelter on a stormy night. And the stranger is allowed in and invited to a, fort, invited to a game of poker. During the game, a member of the household dropped a card and stooped to pick, pick it up and noticed that below the table, the otherwise affable and charming visitor had cloven hooves instead of feet. The devil vanished in a ball of flame and left behind him a smell of brimstone. He probably just farted and left. Probably. And uh, <laughs> also, uh, this story is very, very familiar to 
the one associated in Loftus Hall and County Wexford. But, um, yeah, what I think was, I think it was just an ordinary guy wearing a Kermit Tursorow shoes because he actually designed a pair for Lady Gaga. <laughs> and, uh, and then time travelled backwards and gave it to him. <laughs> exactly. He has cloven hooves and uh, Cthulhu heels as well. So, um, I mean, if, if you're going to wear anything. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most popular story Um associated with the Hellfire Club even though as Ali said it's probably originated in Loftus Hall and as such there's a load of different versions of it so one version has the player dropping his cards under the table in order to cheat and as soon as he sees the hooves he drops dead another version has the devil like shooting up the chimney in a ball of flame and apparently the hoofs are still burned into the floor there however the floor has been since removed so we will never know and in our version they're just high heels <laughs> exactly um other versions have the devil got really angry and threw rocks at the people who were there or big boulders and a f- killed a few and those rocks are supposedly still there today now, there are quite a few boulders outside and they do look out of place supposedly thrown by the devil yeah he, he must have some arm because those <laughs> rocks are massive they're huge another story associated with the hellfire club is a priest who stumbled across the club late at night and he discovered that the centre of attention of the room was a black cat. Breaking free from his captors, the cleric grabbed the cat and uttered an exorcism which tore the beast apart in a hellraiser-like fashion. The demon shot up from its course, hurtling through the roof and brought down the ceiling and scattered the assembly. (laughs) And again, there's a heap of different versions of this one. So um, the priest was possibly investigating satanic rumours, possibly investigating a local murder. And rumours always to do with the murders were that the members of the Hellfire Club committed it. Um, One version is a priest invited into dinner and there's a cat at the head of the table and the cat served first. So the priest asked why and was told it was a mark of respect because the cat was the oldest person there because he was the devil. And that's when the priest starts um, freaking out and performed the exorcism. Yeah. Another version actually has the members douse the cat in whiskey and set it on fire and it escaped across the mountains and that's why the cat, the ghost cat, its eyes glow because of the fire. Ah. And uh, yeah, most of these stories involved numerous accounts of drinking sessions, black masses, animal sacrifices, and on one occasion the sacrifice of a dwarf took place. Supposedly, yeah. yeah. And in 1771, a plumber was working nearby and found a grave that has the bones of something that could be a child or could be a little person. It being the time it was, they didn't investigate any further. So it's really hard to tell. But um, one thing as well that's been said, and I actually kind of believe it was, uh, one passerby stated that he heard the screams of a woman falling down the hill in a barrel that was set ablaze. (laughs) And this was like a common scene that they would see coming from the Hellfire Club. Um, another famous story from the club, and I'd recommend it to anyone who's into their poetry, is Simon Luttrell, Lord Urnham, Earl of Carhampton, and former Sheriff of Dublin, to give him his full title, uh, is the subject of a poem called The Diaboliad by William Combe, and it is dedicated to him, the worst man in His Majesty's domain, because of his actions at the Hellfire Club. And before this poem, is quite a long letter by Combe just trying to explain why he's dedicating it to to Luttrell. He doesn't want to offend him. And he specifically says he doesn't want Luttrell to come after him or his wife. Uh, And then basically the entire poem, it's long enough, but it's good. It's about the devil's retiring and trying to find his replacement. It's satirical, it's full of loads of attacks on people. And eventually the, the devil just collects candidates such as lordlings from the arms of whores and says that the successful person must be false to God, defy every law, thief, traitor, and commit patricide. And Luttrell just volunteers and becomes the king of hell to succeed the devil. In this poem now, this is a Hellfire member, confirmed Hellfire member, because he's in a painting of the uh, members of the Hellfire Club in the National Gallery, painted by Warsdale. And it's a very nice painting, by the way, I've seen it. <laughs> uh, patricide is, is... Murder the father. Murder the father. Uh, I thought it was murder the president. <laughs> <laughs> which we could do with right about now the American president not not ours we like Michael D Michael D is the best Michael T Higgins <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah there's also another story that concerns a young Boharnabrina farmer I'd say Boharnabrina like road sorry Boharnabrina 
farmer who was curious to find out what went on at the meetings. He climbed up Mount Pelier one night, but he was found by other members of the club. He was dragged into the building and allowed to see the night's activities. He was found the next morning wandering around the area, unable to speak or say anything. He'd become deaf and dumb and unable to remember his name. <laughs> Pesky farmers. <laughs> So those are kind of the main big myths that get retold and retold and changed slightly throughout the years. There's lots of smaller ones, like a visitor at a local farmhouse, like not a local man to the area, just went to investigate one night for the crack and he was found dead the next day face down in a stream. Um, History Ireland recently ran an article about the death of Charles Cobb, son of the Archbishop of Dublin, who died in a duel in July 1751 at the lodge. And apparently lots of general folklore stuff like dogs refuse to go near, there's a smell of brimstone inside. And Jonathan Swift of Gulliver's Travels called them abrasive monsters, blasphemers and bacchanalians. Yeah. So, we'll let's talk about the real members now. And yeah. the most notorious member, Lord Santry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Lord Santry was known as the most notorious member. He was also one of the youngest members of the club and, to put it mildly, a really mean drunk. Yeah, he had a reputation for that long before he ever joined the club. <laughs> Born in Dublin in 1710 to the Henry, 3rd Baron of Santry, and his wife, Bridget. Henry was also close friends with, with Jonathan Swift, who wrote Gulliver's Travels. Henry was also known to be a raging and unrelenting alcoholic and womanizer. After he died, his son became the fourth Baron, Barry of Santry, and inherited a considerable estate from Dublin, Meath and Carlo and took his seat in the House of Lords. And uh, he was noted for his polite and rational demeanour while he was sober, but when he was drunk, he was known for his much darker and destructive side and the darker side of his character was unleashed. So, So much so that even Swift felt compelled to tell his mother about it. Jonathan Swift said, Hardly the least acquaintance with your lord, nor was at all desirous to cultivate it, because I did not approve of his conduct. Lord Santry, however, was the apple of her mother's eye, and was blind to his faults, and refused to correct him. So reportedly, Santry avoided prosecution for his misdeeds by bribing witnesses, much to the chagrin of the general public. And it was in the context of the Hellfire Club that he committed the worst of the unpunished crimes. The atrocities went well beyond the bounds of likes of the Pink and Dindies and the Mohawks. And one of the worst acts he committed was the killing of an ill and bedridden Cedan chairman in a horrific and unprovoked attack. So, here we have a direct documentation of the event. Having forced a poor chairman that had been used to carry and lying in a sick bed to drink a quart of brandy and then with kindred, with kindled spirits, Santry set fire to the sheets and to the wretch lay in and the wretch lay in who soon expired with the most excruciating torture. And it's possible that this murder was part of a mock satanic ritual and he was Never prosecuted for the crime because he paid off all the witnesses to keep it very hush hush. It's a good, convenient thing that money, isn't it? <laughs> yes, very much so. Bastard. <laughs> Rich Protestant bastard. I know. I like. The, I love the Protestants really. Um, yeah. So his second brutal murder happened in Patrick Corrigan's tavern in Palmerstown, Dublin. Sandry had been drinking heavily with some friends for most of the night and uh, had an argument with one of them in one of the back rooms. And uh, as the baron became more intoxicated, his mood soured and he started quarrelling with a man named Humphreys. As tension rose, Santry stormed out of the lounge only to have his path blocked by a porter named Lachlan Murphy. Outraged and somewhat embarrassed, Santry shoved the porter into the kitchen and swore he would kill the next man who, sw- who spoke. Unwisely, Murphy tried to order a conciliatory war- word and Santry drew his sword and stabbed him multiple times. As Murphy collapsed in a pool of his own blood, the full implications of his actions dawned on Santry. In a panic, Santry paid off the landlord four, four pounds and fled from the scene. 
As a sign of remorse, Santry sent a surgeon to treat Murphy's wounds and a coach to take him home. The victim lingered between life and death for six weeks, during which time he attempted to prosecute Santry, obviously, or demand compensation. Santry, however, was calm about the whole situation and went on about life as he normally would. This is due to his various other crimes he got away with, including murder. And then Murphy eventually died on the 25th of September of that year, which left Santry besought and in serious shit. <laughs> as he well deserved. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, to be fair, he was remorseful. He did send for a surgeon. To yeah, but you see, if he just stuck with the Catholicism rather than the Satanism, all you have to do is say you're sorry to the priest and you're fine. <laughs> but he, he wasn't a Catholic, he was a Protestant. Oh, then he's fucked it. That anyway. was his first mistake. <laughs> and uh, so Murphy's widow applied to the Lords of Justice to have sanctuary indicted for the murder. And a warrant for his arrest was issued and he turned himself in. He was detained in Newgate Prison. He was trialled at Parliament House on College Green, where Trinity College is, and attracted huge public interest. So this would kind of be like the O.J. Simpson case back in the 1770s. A large scaffolding was even erected in the House of Commons to accommodate the huge crowds that attended. Santry was still confident that he would win the case, but his peers testified proved to be incompetent. Even Dr. Will Will Bradford, the surgeon who treated Murphy, failed to convince his argument that Murphy had died from an, quote-unquote, impostum in the lung caused by a cold. (laughs) It appears Bradford's medical incompetency may have contributed to Murphy's death as much as Santry's stabbing. The jury returned with a verdict of guilty and and Santry was sentenced to death by hanging. However... (laughs) Despite Sanchi's notoriety, the public wanted him released and many protests were held. Many petitions for clemency were signed. Sanchi also had some associates among the jury. And the thought of one of their peers being sentenced to death caused some considerable agitation. The jury eventually found a loophole in which Sanchi was sentenced for killing one of the king's subjects. Therefore, he was indicted for treason instead of murder. But Sanchi's powerful associates, including his, his uncle, Sir Compton Somville, travelled to England to petition to King George II on Sanchi's behalf. Sanchi eventually succeeded and obtained an hour reprieve. And even, although Sanchi narrowly, narrowly escaped conviction, conviction, his reputation was irreversibly damaged and was abandoned by all his friends and family. He was forced into exile in Nottingham and his estates and title were declared forfeit. A ruined man, Santry died of gout in Nottingham in 1751. No more than he deserved. Bastards. (laughs) (laughs) So anyone who's interested in that type of stuff, because this is something that definitely happened, one of the few things we can pin down that happened to a club member or as a result of the club, is should check out ducas.ie that's d-u-c-h-a-s dot i-e which is the irish word for heritage and it's just been brilliant uh, for me anyway it's digitizing the irish folklore commission's archives and there's incredibly weird stuff out there and everyone should support them because irish folklore gets quite intense at points to say the least to say the least but it's a brilliant resource online and the more people go to it the more they'll digitise and make publicly available for free so yeah. Duke study worth a look then that story kind of surprised me in a way I mean I understood that you know he did he did have an awful lot of money he did pay a lot of people off but it's just like the way the general public hated him in the beginning and then after he was convicted they were like I oh, know sure he's a grand fella let him go <laughs> but we love an anti-hero I think that's part of it yeah, so yeah. that's why we love Deadpool so much. Yeah. Um, um, another confirmable thing that happened at the fire at the Hellfire Club is, appropriately enough, it was set on fire. But there's a heap of different versions of that story, and it's hard to know how often it was set on fire. So a couple of different things are um, the club themselves burnt it in protest when Connolly's son refused to renew the lease for them. Yeah. That's one version, and when you're drunk, that might sound like a good idea. <laughs> Um, so another version says the members did burn it, but this time to give it a hellish appearance. It's just for shits and giggles. Mm-hmm. Uh, another version says Burn Chapel Whaley, a member of the club, and that's a hell of a nickname, pun intended. After a black mass, a footman spilled a drink in him, so in retaliation, Whaley threw brandy and lit it on fire, and the flame spread. Several members were killed, servants were killed, the inside was burnt out. 
And then after this, basically, the club had to relocate to nearby Killikey Stewart's house until until it was renovated, but it was kind of the beginning of the end for a lot of it. The yeah. activity started to decline. In 1849, then, there was definitely a bonfire on the roof to celebrate the arrival of Queen Victoria. Because so, that's always a good idea. Yeah, that didn't help matters. <laughs> <laughs> and, um... So, as we mentioned, Buck Whaley there. The re- the, where that was Burn Chapel Whaley. Buck Whaley is his son. Oh, sorry. Burn Chapel Whaley. Burn Chapel Whaley got his name from actually burning chapels. So it was <laughs> quite an apt name, Burn Chapel Whaley. And it was normally a thatch-roofed of uh, churches and dioceses. So they were burned quite easily. So that's yeah, where they were very from. common in Ireland at the time. So you have plenty of father. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so... We talk about scalping? Yeah, yeah. while we're drinking it. Yeah, so we're about halfway through our, our mugs of scalping here. They taste a lot better than they look. I don't know, did I make it wrong or not? It's very hard to find a good recipe online. But um, yeah, definitely recommend it. We're enjoying it anyway. Yeah. We'll definitely have it again. Yeah. It's a tough one to Google because there's so many different spellings of it, both of the English word and of the Irish word. But spell it how it sounds and you'll find something to do with scalping. Um, scalping is the one constant throughout the entire Irish Hellfire Club they drank it from the very very beginning there's a variety of recipes throughout the whole country for it like it wasn't just a Hellfire thing some of them seem to have been nearly dinners like one recipe I found was uh, half a bottle of whiskey half a pound of butter six eggs and spices along with some beef broth the version we're drinking is uh, whiskey, water, sugar, butter, pepper and yeah just boiled in a pot the key is it should be creamy so it's actually difficult enough to to not burn the butter. Yeah. 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 Which you managed to not do. I managed. I managed it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the the Hellfire members appreciate this iteration of it, but well, I think dead, they'll be making so. it again. <laughs> um. So the Victorian Almanac Chambers Book of Days chronicles scalping, and it says a good scalping maker was in really high demand, and talks about the club's scalping maker as well, and how he had an apprentice, and he said it was always served at dinner. And a word lightly spoken of it was considered a deadly insult, only to be washed out by the blood of the offender. So they took their drink seriously. Would they actually like bleed them to death or they were just cut them? You see, it's another one of those things that we have, that's the only information we have about it. Yeah. So I think the left, the rest is just for your imagination. Ooh. Which is probably how all this shit got started. Oh my god. And then lastly, in, in Irish, we have shanuckles or proverbs. And there is a shanuckle about a scalping. Which literally translates to what whiskey and butter can't cure, there is no cure for. Yeah, which we can attest to right here. <laughs> Definitely, I'm feeling much perkier. But then again, these were in the days before cocaine was invented. So, you know, they did the best with what they could, with what they had. Yeah, or, you know, penicillin or <laughs> baby steps. Baby steps, baby steps. <laughs> so, as we were saying, the club did begin to decline. And from about 1745 onwards, a couple of members of the clubs were killed in the Battle of Fontenoy. So this combined with the kind of sanitary scandal and fire at the club all kind of contributed to it slowly falling out of fashion, but was eventually revived in 1771 by Thomas Buck Whaley, the son of Richard Burnchapel Whaley. Who burned down chapels, yeah. as we said, incidentally. So you can imagine the kind of offspring he produced. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, Thomas Buck Whaley was to become famous book of all, or should we say infamous book of all? Definitely. <laughs> Born in 1766, it was Buck Whaley who rallied the Hellfire Club from its low ebb, to which it had sunk after the burning of Montpellier. And... Uh, it, he declared his intention of defying God and man in nightly revels. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, he was very committed to the cause. They did rename <laughs> themselves the Holy Father, but I think in like kind of popular locality, they still called it the Hellfire Club. Yeah. So that yeah. rebranding didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, Book Way inherited a huge fortune, like so many others. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, after the death of his father, being granted a yearly allowance of £900 at the age of 16, he had an eventful upbringing, jumping from tutors in England and France before returning home, having spent some time in jail. Obviously, having inherited some of his father's hatred of the church, he was thrown into jail in Marseille, having insulted and violently assaulted and raising his sacrilegious hands against a priest. 
He escaped a long sentence by being secreted out of the country by friends of his, of his lawyer. While his inheritance at the time was huge, arguably he won an even greater fortune at gambling games, as well as partaking in some bizarre wagers, wagers such as the Jerusalem wager, where he wagered £25,000, where he would go to Jerusalem and back within a year, which he did, and he boasts that he actually played handball against the Jerusalem wall and spent the entire time drinking and whoring. And, um, I mean, when you have a system, why, why stop? Exactly. On one occasion, for a bet of £12,000, he wrote a beautiful white Arab stallion in a death-defying leap from the drawing room on the second floor of his house on St Stephen's Green over a carriage parked outside the door and onto the street, 30-odd odd, odd feet below. He won his wager, surviving a broken leg, but killed his horse. That's really sad. I know they're like they've done horrible things, but for some reason, death of animals always seems really sad. Yeah, especially a beautiful Arab stallion. (laughs) Speaking of horrible things, this incarnation of the Hellfire Club, so far as I'm concerned, is beyond the pale compared to the rumors of the other earlier incarnations. It's they had whores, but it's always consensual sex because that's how you pay them. Um, And then there was (laughs) random demonic rituals, which didn't really harm anyone but the only really bad thing that we can confirm is Santry committing murder however the rumours of this club really amped it up a lot like they're the one enduring rumour for them that's always attached to later Hellfire Club is that they kidnapped murdered and cannibalised a local farmer's daughter yeah and they yeah basically ate her body and dump the bones but again that can't be accounted for anything yeah yeah we have no evidence however like all the earlier rumors had all the satanic overtones and they were very definitely folklore slash fiction whereas this there's no folkloric overtones just cannibalism for the sake of cannibalism so you can see how even public opinion was starting to turn against them there yeah and um, there's absolutely no way we can back this up and we could find very little information on it so we're kind of dubious yeah, of everything basically we've said so far. <laughs> basically, yeah. Booker became a member of the Cherokee Cherokee Club, which was known as a successor of the Hellfire Club, named after the after the Cherokee Indians. They were described as tall and ungainly men with pale complexions, uh, which was the result of heavy drinking and staying in bed all night. Sorry, staying in bed all day from hangover. Their clothes had red trimming ribbons and buttons. Their uniform was described as, quote, an improvement on the black and yellow flamed coloured uniform of the Hellfire Club, which, you know, we actually can't attest to because... Yeah, we found mentioned nowhere else. Yeah, exactly. Also, the Cherokee Club weren't as notorious as the rest because um, all they really did was gatecrash parties and got drunk, basically. They didn't partake in any rituals or murder. They're a bog standard university student. Basically, yeah. The Cherokees, however, did have rivals, um, a club called the Chalkers. And they were called the Chalkers uh, because they chalked people's faces. And chalk is a lovely little euphemism for maiming people's faces. Oh, not just rubbing chalk on their face. It seems kind of harmless and fun. No, that's horrible. But um, eventually, Buck Whaley felt very remorseful for all his past sins. And then he he sought absolution. Whilst praying in St. Odian's Church off modern-day Thomas Street in Dublin, he had a vision of the devil creeping down the aisle towards him. Seized with terror, he ran down the church and fled Ireland forever. Good riddance to him. Yeah, fuck that guy. He lived the last few years of life with his mistress, now and then became his wife, in a mansion he built on the Isle of Man, where he wrote his memoirs. Repentant in his sickness and memory, he wrote... I thought that a fateful picture of my youthful eccentricities, drawn with justice and impartiality, would not be unacceptable to my countrymen, and particularly to my younger friends, who will find some few examples which they may follow with advantage, but many more which they ought to avoid. He died at the age of 34 of sclerosis of the liver, although... Some rumour has it that he was stabbed to death by one of his many mistresses in a jealous rage after he was found sleeping with one of the mistress's sisters. <laughs> the devil. <laughs> the devil himself, yeah. So, well, the bastard, really. But, uh, we, again, 
nothing is gospel, so we don't know for sure. Yeah, but these are definitely the most interesting versions we could find. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so after the Hellfire Club. So, an established antiquarian visited the house in 1779 named Austin Cooper and found it in a state of disrepair and desolation. A general of the Society of the United Irishmen, Joseph Holt, recorded his memoirs and he spent the night in the ruin of Mount Pellier while on the run following the 1798 rebellion. And this is one of our many failed rebellions against the Brits. Yeah. Holt wrote of his experience. I lay down in the arch room of that remarkable building. I felt confident in the protection of the Almighty that the name of the enchantment and the idle stories that were told of that place had but a slight hold of my mind. The Connolly family then sold the land to Luke White in 1880. After his death, the land was inherited by the Massey family from County Limerick. When the Massey family became bankrupt, the the land was required by the state. Yeah. So, the Hellfire Club may be dead, but the rumours aren't, and the ghosts definitely aren't. The Evening Herald and the Evening Press had a series of reports in 1968 to 1970, several articles documenting the haunting of Mrs. Margaret O'Brien and her husband, the Garda, local Garda sergeant at the time, and they were converting at the steward's house. This is the house the Hellfire Club used after burning down their own headquarters. They temporarily used the steward's house, and Margaret O'Brien and her husband were converting it into an arts centre. And they had a terrible time. All the tradesmen quit because of ghosts, and there were various different ghosts they saw. Some of them claimed to have been confronted by a ghostly black cat with glowing eyes, and they quit. Other apparitions include two Indian gentlemen, for some reason. Half-naked Indian! Sure, why not? <laughs> Lots of ringing bells, poltergeists, and then two nuns named Blessed Margaret and Holy Mary, which they claimed to have part in black masses on the hill. There's no evidence that nuns ever went to the Hellfire Club. However, we have reason to believe the Hellfire Club members took prostitutes there and called the prostitutes nuns as a joke. So they saw the ghosts of two prostitutes. Maybe they were they were prostitutes, but they were dressed in like the nuns' habit or something like that. Possibly, possibly. And then in 1971, I think it said 1771 earlier, it was when the plumber found the bones of what was either a child or a little person. And there are, of course, rumours that a little person was sacrificed at the Hellfire Club. Yeah, so today the ma- the building is maintained by Coilsha, who managed the forestry plantations on Mount Pelé's slopes and have installed concrete stairs and iron safety rails across the upper windows so the general public can enjoy this magnificent and historical site. Yeah. So just in general, it's there's a hall, there's two reception rooms where all the crack happened. Um, the eastern side had sleeping quarters and stairs to the upper floors for members. And then the kind of ground floor was where the servants lived and where the kitchens were. So it's not huge, but it was more than enough for a club. Yeah, and it has apparently fantastic view up there. And the place is said to be haunted by ghosts of the black cat, to this day, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah, they are obsessed with their cats. So, I think it's time for a road trip. Yeah, so uh, we're off to the Hellfire Club now, which is actually not too far where we are. We're not drinking and driving. (laughs) In case anyone's worried. Yeah, we're not advocating that. Don't do it, kids. But if you are in Ireland, do feel free to join us. It's easily accessible with public transport, and the roads are quite clearly marked. So... We will meet you there. Well, we'll see you there. Or somebody will anyway. (laughs) All right, so off we go. So here we are in the Hellfire Club at last. (laughs) Live on site, 383 metres in the air, which is why we're a bit out of breath. Yeah, and uh, we just bet the rain there. Good old July weather in Ireland, it's lashing as usual. Hence why we're so out of breath. And if you hear a child in the background, don't worry. It's just there for the satanic ritual for sacrifice. (laughs) Standard ritualistic practice. Yeah, but it's actually an incredibly busy spot for an abandoned building. Um, Lots of children around. Yeah, very family friendly. Uh, Satanism. Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. And... um, yeah, the, the ceilings are really small here, so we for the first time in our lives we actually feel really tall. Yeah, you have to duck going in through the doors of the servants' quarters, so it, uh, they really didn't give a shit about their servants. But the vaulted stone roof that Connolly added after the devil blew off the first one is quite impressive. 
yeah, if a little clumsily put on, yeah. but um, you can't really blame him for that. Um, yeah. The view from here is incredible as well, by the way. Like you can see why he picked the site. I would totally take part in satanic rituals if you could have that view from dinner. You can see all of Dublin Bay, Dundalk, Meath, Kildare. Like it's, it's brilliant. We'll like, put pictures on the Twitter. Yeah, it's like it's, it's. I'm not here to worship Satan. I'm just here to appreciate the view. Exactly. <laughs> So we are in the banqueting hall, we're going to have a picnic because apparently that's the type of place this is now. And then rumour has it, if you walk anti-clockwise three times around the building, you'll summon the devil himself. So I'm going to do that, I'm going to try and get an interview. Yeah, hopefully. And uh, FYI, if you play Pokemon Go, this is a great place for catching Bulbasaur. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the devil knows his audience. Alright, so uh, we're going to have a picnic and hopefully we won't uh, step in any poo because it is quite dark. Yeah. And uh, this place was actually known for its raves back in the day. And uh, so yeah, there'd be a lot of raves around here at night and uh, the devil himself would be, you know, selling MDNA and ecstasy around the place. Uh, only quality stuff though with the devil. Yeah. The pure yeah. shit. He knows the stuff. Exactly. So uh, yeah, we're just going to wait for the rain to stop and uh, have a bit of a picnic probably in uh, the banquishing hall. And we're back. I'm afraid uh, we did actually attempt to summon the devil. We walked clockwise once by accident, but we eventually yeah. got it right and walked anti-clockwise three times. And, you know, he may not have been the devil, but after three times round, uh, a very fat, creepy ginger kid did appear. Yeah. And shouted, I am here. And yeah. And ran into the club. He said, I've arrived. And, you know, he had red hair. He was quite suspicious looking. <laughs> yeah. He's probably only afraid. about five years old, but the kid with him had a broken arm. So I'm willing to bet he did it. Yeah. And another kid had, like, a broken leg as well. And he had, like, a staff to help him along. So, you know, I'm, I'm very suspicious of him. Yeah. Waves of destruction in his wake. But uh, <laughs> he had parents with him, so we decided not to interview him. <laughs> so um, the Hellfire Club as it is today is has been in the news quite a lot recently in 2016 there was an excavation there led by archaeologist Neil Jackman and they're the people who excavated the passage grave that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode it's 5,000 years old and it's quite an important site because it's very rare that the National Monument Service gives permission to dig passage tombs in Ireland the passage tomb there is possibly, they theorise, part of an extended cemetery of ancient tombs atop several mountains in Dublin and Wicklow. And the dig itself is very well documented. They found a lot of interesting stuff, but I think they still want to go back to do more. Like they yeah. haven't found as much as they wanted to. Um, so the, arche- the archaeology is there. And then the other interesting thing is the Save the Hellfire campaign. Yeah, the Save the Hellfire campaign. And before we were talking to, I think... We actually never found out her name, but she was a member of the Hell No Club. Yeah. She looked like a Helen, so we'll call her Helen. Yeah, we were calling her Helen. We, we don't know what her name is, but yeah, let's go with Helen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. So the Hell No campaign or the Save the Hellfire Club.com and their Save the Hellfire Club on Facebook, if you want to go like them, are protesting against a proposed visitor's centre at the club. The, I don't know, is it the government or is it Quilcha themselves? It's Quilcha themselves, yeah. yeah. They're proposing a visitor's centre that's going to cost about 19 million euro at the, the Hellfire Club. And this will comprise a cafe, a visitor centre, a restaurant and a treetop canopy walk. And a, there's also going to be seminar rooms and a display area, kind of like a mini museum as well. And then they're going to expand the current car park. As well. Now they could do with fixing the entrance a little bit. Yeah. I think I think it's fine. Fixed a few potholes here and there, but yeah, we, we definitely don't agree with this new proposal. Yeah. So they actually had a protest there at the twenty eighth of May of this year. Five hundred people turned up to the protest, which is quite a lot for what's very much a local issue. Exactly. Particularly yeah. in Ireland, like we are a small country. And the concerns are mainly like it's gonna Quilcha, the forestry agency, is gonna have to cut down a lot of trees to make room for this. Yeah. It's it, gonna turn into a concrete jungle, like it's getting rid of all our natural wilderness. Like it's quite a cool forest. When yeah, yeah. There. It was and it's 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 gonna interfere with like the beautiful view and everything that's there and we've been up there and it is fantastic. Yeah, it's absolutely really cool. stunning. There's also impact on the local wildlife and the ecosystem. Like the Hellfire Club is one of the few places in Ireland where you can still see red squirrels. They're nearly extinct. And this visitor centre will not help. And then there's concerns that, of course, the water system won't be able to take all this new traffic because uh, anyone who's been in Ireland is aware of the disaster that is Irish water. Also, we know by, by you know, all the suggestions that this is going to be very gimmicky. Like, we don't want another leprechaun museum. Yeah, we kind of yeah. want to preserve the way things are. 
I mean, fair enough if you want like a small cafe or something like that, it'll be grand, but this is, it's, it's overkill. Yeah, it does get rid of the kind of whole mystique about the area as well. Like what's scary about going to your lovely nice little car park and walking up your lovely defined path and then having a cup of tea and yeah. I, th- I think like the worst thing would be like, but there'd be no coverage up there. But there was coverage up there as we found out. Yeah, yeah. So we knew we weren't going to be killed because in horror movies they always get killed when they have no coverage. Exactly, but it, it did have a very spooky atmosphere around the place. Like yeah. it did seem like the type of place that you'd see in a horror movie where teenagers get murdered. Yeah, it's quite an imposing building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then there's the forest around it. Yeah, and speaking of spookiness, there was an article uh, in the Irish Independent on the 17th of July this year, so only like a week before filming this episode. Um, and the headline itself is brilliant. It's one of those that just gets better and better with every word. So to quote, Man, 26, felt a weird air at Dublin's Hellfire Club when he stabbed a camper in the throat, court hears. So that's, it's... That's legit, right? Yeah, there. yeah, definitely. Like, this is a man, um, he obvious mental issues. He's being sent for psychological assessment before he can enter a plea. But he is up at the Hellfire Club, ran into some campers, and felt a weird air, felt he was about to be attacked, so attacked them first with a knife and some logs. It wasn't me, it was the ghosts. <laughs> Uh, it's also appeared in pop culture, like Ali mentioned, there's an Imelda, Imelda May song about it. And Irish Ghost Hunters did an episode there, but it's pure shite. They just so point the camera up your man's nostrils the whole time. There's <laughs> nothing about the history or the background or I'm anything like, on it. Oh, I feel something. I feel something here. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely something weird going on. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> so, that is the Hellfire Club. Yeah. So, we're now just going to have a wee discussion before we end, about why the Anglo-Irish gentry were so violent and antisocial. <laughs> so, any theories on this? I think they were second Protestants, and up to no good as usual. How did I know you were going to start with that? Ah, <laughs> uh, no. No, not really. However, there is some small amount of evidence to back you up. Donald Ryan and his book, or David Ryan and his book, Blackguards and Blasphemers, does point out that this Protestant ascendancy in Ireland was rooted in a culture of drunkenness and was more prone to kind of excess and kind of vandalism and drinking and gambling than anywhere else in Europe because they were they weren't in their own country. They were very much unregulated in a foreign country. Their own families, the own like English system wasn't there to look after them. They very much ruled the roost in Ireland. So they could do what they like. So the kind of boundaries that we normally have weren't there for them. Yeah, and an Ori theory is that they felt kind of ashamed as well because they were British ascendants, so they kind of felt like they were riding on the tailcoats of the British gentry. Yeah, yeah, and then there is a kind of thing, like in Ireland we do tend to copy everything that happens in England, but we have to go one better in a lot of ways. And we, so. we kind of did it with the Hellfire Club, to be fair. <laughs> in fairness, yeah, I found it more interesting. Um... There's also things like there's massive social inequalities. So we mentioned the Irish Irish Hellfire Club is really kind of steeped in folklore. Yeah. And part of the thing in Ireland is you had the Protestant ascendancy, which was about 20% of the population. Then you had the rest of the peasants who were illiterate. They didn't have anything really to their name. And everything was oral history and passed on orally. So the stories were much more likely to get out of hand because they were completely removed from anything that happened at the club. Like there was no middle class. And all they had was these rumours and all they had to entertain themselves at night was ghost stories. So that's and they possibly... tell their friends and they tell their friends <laughs> and, and, just so, like Chinese on, whispers. and so on and so on. Chinese whispers, exactly. Uh, which is called telephone in other countries because I think Chinese whispers is kind of racist. I think it probably is. I, I thought in China for a while and asked them and they just call it whispers. They were very confused by the whole thing. Because there it is, just whispers. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Ryan also kind of points out that, or has the idea, I don't know what you think of it, um, he says that the club wasn't entirely a negative thing, that it was part of a modernising influence in Ireland, trying to separate the church from state. Yeah, because as I said, it was kind of part of the Enlightenment, and a lot of these men were quite educated, uh, more so than the feckin' peasants that we were just talking about. And again, maybe they were just fed up of being so suppressed all the time, which I can totally relate to coming from a Catholic country. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, like, Irish history is really, really violent. So this isn't that long after the plantations. They would have, um, they would have had uh, the peasantry 
would have had lots of violent crimes and violent acts in living memory. And these acts were perpetrated by the ascendancy, the mem the people who were the members of the club. So you can see it was very easy for them to kind of jump to the conclusion, like from, oh yeah, raping and pillaging to, oh yeah, demon worship and Satan. Like it's not that sm that big a jump. Yeah, not really. And like they knew they were going to all get away with this, shut up with this stuff. And if you know you're going to get away with it, you're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like talk to any child. Yeah. <laughs> That's so how it works. So they're all spoiled brats, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we probably would have done the same if we were in their position. Yeah, I can't imagine us not getting involved. I mean, yeah, we're enjoying the skull teen and off a bit too much now. Yeah, it's a slippery <laughs> slope from here. <laughs> I know, we're, we're Catholic plebs, so that's never going to happen. Yeah, yeah, we're actually, actually, that's something that, if anyone has any information about this, please write into the show, find us on Twitter, Facebook, anything like that. Um... According to Wikipedia, font of all knowledge, and this is the only <laughs> place I've found this, there are still Hellfire clubs in Ireland, particularly attached to Maynooth University, of which Ali and I are both alumni. We did our undergrads there. Mm -hmm. And there's one in Trinity where I did my master's. And I never heard a word of it while I was there or since. So either we're complete and total peasants that we're not even let in on the rumours, or Wikipedia might be wrong. But if anyone's heard of any of the modern ones, I, I'd love to know. Yeah, same Anything here. tell us. Please tell us, because we're dying to know. All right. So, speaking of that. Uh, here ended the podcast. Special thanks to Connor Morgan for his acting, Megan McDermott for her logo, Lauren McNamee for her artwork, and Darren Donahue for his music. Yo!